Father God, um, it has been already, it's Tuesday, it's been an emotional week. Um, God, I'm excited to come before you, open up your word, uh, dig in and, and find out some cool stuff about you and share some of your word to those uh, here with us tonight and out there who may be listening online. Father God, quickly, I just want to lift up uh, Ruth's family as we lost Ruth this week. And uh, that was an emotional experience. Uh, we're going to miss her dearly. But God, we thank you so much that she's with you, uh, that we have confidence that she's with you. And God, we just lift up her, her family, um, who is going to be missing her dearly uh, and is missing her dearly now. Um, but God, we thank you that we can have confidence that we will see her again on the other side of heaven. God, I ask that you would bless this night as we open up your word. Give us an understanding, ears to hear, uh, and open hearts. God, thank you for what you're about to display to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> this is Uncaged. Um, we named this study Uncaged from a note, uh, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, where he said, the word of God is like a caged lion. It doesn't need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. So that's our goal. We just want to open up God's word, let it speak to us, uh, and let it roar as loud as it wants to. So we decided, what better place to start than the book of Revelation, because Revelation is the culmination of God's plan. So much of scripture connects to it that it really gives us a big overarching picture of God's story and God's plan. We opened up in the first chapter, you see a vision of Christ that John has. And Christ tells John to write down the things that he has seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. And the things that, which will take place after this is the Greek phrase meta-tauta, M-E-T-A space T-A-U-T-A, meta-tauta. That will come into play tonight. Because as you look through the book of Revelation, you see that it's broken up just like Jesus told John to write. The things that he has seen is the vision of Christ in chapter 1. The things which are, are the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then the, what will happen after these things is chapters 4 through the rest of the book. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit tonight. We just finished up the seventh letter to the seven churches, to the church of Laodicea. And uh, we got a pretty grim look at what the last day's church will look like uh, and what Laodicea was as a church that Jesus wasn't a part of. He was standing on the outside, knocking, hoping somebody would let him in because Jesus was not a part of the lukewarm church. They used his name in their messages, but he was not a true part of that church. The true gospel was not being preached at the church of Laodicea. And now we move into chapter four. But before we get there, <clears throat> chapter four is really broken up into two topics. And we're going to try to cover both tonight. So the first topic is the rapture of the church. And the second topic is the throne room in heaven. Just to help you understand, if you haven't heard the terms before or if you don't know what they mean. The rapture of the church is Christ gathering the church to himself um, and bringing 
taking them off the earth, the dead first, and then the alive, those of us who are alive will meet him up in the air, and head back to heaven with him um, before the tribulation. That is the, the vision of the pre-tribulation rapture. There are other views. Um, one is the mid-tribulation rapture or the pre-wrath rapture, which means they believe that the rapture will take place halfway through the tribulation period. And the tribulation period is a seven-year period that is consistently known throughout the Old Testament as the day of the Lord or the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel 9. Or in the book of Jeremiah, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's a seven-year period of God's judgment, God's final judgment on the earth before Christ's return. And so there's also a post-tribulation rapture position, which is that the second coming and the rapture are ideally the same event. As Christ comes back, the church meets him up in the air halfway and then comes right back down. I do not particularly hold to that view. There are some strong arguments, but the view I hold to is the pre-tribulation rapture, and tonight you're going to find out why. Um, I find it hard to argue against that version. So, to dig in, we're going to actually go through some of the doctrine of the rapture outside of the book of Revelation, and then dig in to chapter 4, because I think chapter 4 ultimately confirms the pre-tribulation rapture position. So here we go. The first time you hear about this concept of the rapture is Jesus' own words. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms, depending on the translation, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, and the way you know, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Then Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying something that's pretty new to them. He's saying, in my Father's house, there's a lot of rooms or mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself and then take you to where I am. So this is a picture of the Jewish wedding ceremony, the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony, which would have happened back then The son, who would have been betrothed to his bride, probably from some sort of prearranged marriage between the parents, the groom, who would be the son, would leave his father's house, go to his bride's house to fulfill the contract, whether that's pay the dowry, pay, bring animals or whatever to fulfill the contract made by the parents. He would go to his bride's house, fulfill, pay the price for his bride. He would then leave, and that begins the engagement period. He would then leave, go back to his father's house. In his father's house, he would build an addition. No, the bride would have no idea when he's going to return because you don't know when this project is going to be completed. But when he completes the project, he 
comes back for his bride. While he is on the way, the bride would always be prepared as she knew the time was getting closer to leave because she didn't know when, so she always had to be prepared. So as the groom comes closer, once someone sees him, they would blow a shofar trumpet. The bride and the bridesmaids would go and meet the groom on his way, turn around, he would turn around, and they would all head back to the father's house for a wedding feast, which typically lasted about a week. So this is a picture of Jesus, and this is what he's telling us. Jesus, the son, left heaven, left his father's house. He came, he paid the price for his bride, the church, with his death on the cross. He then ascended into heaven, and he told his disciples he is preparing a place for them, just like the Jewish wedding ceremony. And at some point in the future, he will come again and receive the church to himself and then take the church to where he is, heaven. Jesus gives us an even close, clearer picture of what this looks like in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. So I'm going to read that. So quickly, before I read this, the disciples were alone with Jesus, and they asked him a question about his second coming. They asked him a question about the end times and what this is going to look like, and this is a part of Jesus's response to that. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. There's going to be a lot of verses tonight, um, so if you can follow along, awesome. If not, I would recommend at least writing down the references so that you can look them up later. Here we go. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So very clearly, this is a picture of the Jewish wedding, and they are prepared and waiting for the groom to receive them. Now, five of them were wise. Five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Oil is often representative of the Holy Spirit. They took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, he's already telling us this is going to take a little bit longer than you might expect. While the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Open the door to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Two weeks ago, we were talking about the Church of Philadelphia. And the Church of Philadelphia was the church that had the door open to them. Remember the name, that, the title that Christ gave himself? Part of the title which Christ gave himself was 
That which he opens, no one can shut. That which he shuts, no one can open. And I mentioned that there was an interesting connection between the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea in that the title that Christ gave himself to those two churches were the only title that didn't connect back to chapter 1 of Revelation. And so I think that if the commentators are right and there's a prophetic profile to the seven churches that lead us through the church ages and what the church will look like at the end, then the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea will sort of be on earth at the same time in the end. And if the Church of Philadelphia is the one with the open door and no one can shut the door except Jesus, and this is a picture of the rapture, then at the rapture, Jesus shuts the door and the Church of Laodicea is left there. And because they had Jesus standing outside their church and they had no oil, they had no Holy Spirit because they didn't truly know Jesus, when they go to him, he says to you, I say to you, I do not know you. So it's very important to know who Jesus really is and to trust in his word. Now, Paul expands on this idea of the rapture in his letter, in particular, his letters to the Thessalonians. So I'm going to start there. Um, This is a pretty famous section, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18. Paul writes this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who have passed away. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, We shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort another with these words. Now, the two words caught up, if you want to highlight those or circle it, I would. Caught up is a Greek word, harpazo. Um, And it means to be snatched away quickly. Now, there is an argument out there. There are some who say, the the word rapture isn't in the Bible. How How can I trust that the doctrine of the rapture even exists. That's kind of wrong, because the word harpazo in Greek, when it was translated into the Latin Vulgate version, was the word raptus, which literally is rapture in English. So the word is there. The word rapture is there. It just got translated into English caught up, but it can also be the word rapture. Um, If you were transliterating it from Latin, you would put the word rapture there. So, yes, that word is in the scriptures. So, Paul is saying, when Christ comes, he will descend from the heavens with a shout and with the trumpet of God. The dead will rise first, and those who are alive will be raptured or caught up or harpazo um, and meet him in the clouds. And if Jesus' words from John 14 and Matthew 25, then we will be turning around and heading back for the wedding banquet in heaven. On 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul gives us an even deeper understanding of, of what this might look like when it happens. 
to give us an idea of when the timeline of the rapture might be. Now, again, we have no idea. No one knows the day or the hour. It's unpredictable. If anyone predicts a day, they've lied to you because you can't do it. Jesus said so himself. But Paul gives us an idea of the signs and the timeline to be looking at. So verse 1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as is from us, as, as though the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, or apostasy. Which, if you remember last week from the Church of Laodicea, the falling away, getting lukewarm, the, fi- the end days church, that makes sense, right? Until the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Oftentimes he's referred to in Christian literature or fiction as the Antichrist, but he has a lot of names, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the beast, lots of different names. He will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's a description of the abomination of desolation. You'll see that phrase in Matthew 24. You'll see that, a description of that in Revelation 13 uh, and in Daniel, I think, 7 or 9. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. So ultimately, he's saying the Antichrist, the man of sin, the beast, whatever you want to call him, he cannot be revealed until the one who restrains is out of the picture. And he specifically calls the one who restrains he. So we know it's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person referred to as he in Scripture. And so there's a lot of commentators who believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And he's restraining the spirit of lawlessness and the, and the revelation of the Antichrist. And so when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, then the man of lawlessness will be able to be revealed. Well, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In the church. So that's a picture of the rapture. And Paul, again, gives us another picture, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and he's referring to death when he says this. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, Paul's really good at making confusing words, and this mortal has put on immortality, then he shall be brought up to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So Paul ultimately is saying, for some generation, and he was even thinking it could be me, could be my generation, 
not everyone is going to die, but everybody who believes will be changed. And in that moment, when it happens, it'll happen in the twinkling of an eye, the snap of a finger, right? In that moment, the dead will rise incorruptible, and then the rest of us who are alive will be changed, mirroring his words from 1 Thessalonians, that the dead will rise first, and those of us who are alive will be caught up in the air. So that's a picture of the rapture. You might say, well, that's a whole lot of New Testament. Do we have any of this? Was there any sort of sense that this was going to happen in the Old Testament? Well, prophecy is also pattern. So let's take a look just before the first major judgment and destruction that came upon the earth. Genesis 5, verses 21 through 24. Genesis 5 is a lineage of Adam to Noah. And this is a very interesting piece here in the middle of a man named Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. So he named his son Methuselah, which means his death shall bring. Very interesting because Enoch was a prophet, and he's quoted in other parts of Scripture as a prophet who made some very interesting predictions. We'll get to there in a minute. But this is a very interesting one. He named his son his death shall bring. The year that Methuselah died was the year that the flood started. So we know Methuselah was a faithful man. He understood God. He was prepared. He was ready. And he was looking. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Well, what does it mean by God took him away? Every other person, it explicitly states that they died in Genesis 5. So why was Enoch just taken away? What does this mean? The writer of Hebrews tells us a little bit more. Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. God had raptured him. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So Enoch was saved by faith, and he was raptured and taken out of the way before the judgment came. That sets up a pattern for what the rapture looks like and what Jesus is talking about. But Enoch didn't only prophesy about that judgment. He prophesied about, he actually prophesied about the second coming of Christ long before the flood ever happened. He's quoted in the book of Jude, verses 14 through 16. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all their defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him, meaning God. These people are grumblers and fault finders, They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own disadvantage. So Enoch is an interesting character who understood 
what it meant for the second coming as well as the destruction that was going to come upon the earth. And because he was a man who had faith and was ready, he was taken out of the picture and raptured up into heaven before the judgment came. So that sets us up with an idea of the pre-tribulation rapture, as well as the idea that Paul said, the Holy Spirit must be taken out of the way which dwells within the church before the Antichrist can be revealed. So here we go. Revelation chapter 4. I think this seals the deal for me on a pre-tribulation rapture view. But again, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Otherwise, I would believe something else. So Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After this, I looked after this. The first words of chapter 4 are after this. Guess which phrase that is? Meta tauta. It leads us right to the idea that it's the future events just like he told John to write down. So we know chapter 4 starts with metatauta. We're looking into the future. After this, metatauta, I looked, and there was before me a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like this, or speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this, metatauta. So, John is called up into heaven by the voice of a trumpet um, by Jesus. And he says, come up here, I will take you. Um, I will show you what must take place after this. So, even John is a picture of the rapture called up by the voice of a trumpet by Jesus. Now, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled around the throne. There's not a lot of information about those specific, like, why that description. But the idea is the king is on the throne. This is likely Jesus. He's sitting there. And there's the appearance of Jasper, which is pretty clear, like a diamond. Ruby is red. Maybe that's a reference to the blood of Christ. Uh, and the fact that there's a rainbow around the throne... Uh, could be reference to the fact that God's promises are eternal, and he promised after the flood that the sign of the rainbow would mean he wouldn't destroy with a flood any longer, and that promise is still standing in heaven, potentially. And then we get to verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, as we went through chapters 2 and 3, there were a lot of times where I had you guys circle descriptions of the church. And you saw crowns on their heads, them being dressed in white. So who are these 24 elders? Well, they fit the description of the church in chapters 2 and 3. So the church is now in heaven. Why 24 elders? Who are these 24 elders? Well, the only other time... 24 is in the Bible like this, is in 1 Chronicles 23 and 24. What's happened is there are thousands of priests, and they sort of need to be organized. And David has this idea where he gathers them all, and he figures out, what do we do? Well, let's, let's have 
figure out the ratio of whose descendants are who are whose, and then kind of look at the numbers and see what you get. And then based on that, he takes 18 from descendants of one member, and then six from another, which is 18 and six is 24. He says, so members of these two tribes cast lots, and there's 24 lots. There's 18 for this side, six for these, and then these 24 representatives are now have become representative of the whole priesthood so that they can kind of organize their work and then disseminate that to the rest of the priesthood. So it was sort of a way to organize and make things make sense for the thousands of priests that there were. There ended up being 24 representatives that were representative of the whole bunch for the temple. And you'll see that in 1 Chronicles 23 and 24. So the first thing you see, write the description is, write the things that you have seen, write the things which are, and write the things which, things which will happen after this metatauta. So the first thing you see in the metatauta description is the church. Now, next week when we go to chapter 5, you'll actually see a scroll get opened. Um, and when the first seal is opened of that scroll, the Antichrist is revealed, and we'll get into those details first. But the church is sitting there, or the 24 elders are sitting there, responding to what's happening. And so if they're in heaven before the first seal of the tribulation period is opened, then the church is in heaven before the first seal of the tribulation period is opened, which would tell me, and from Revelation chapter 4, that, man, we're looking at a pre-tribulation rapture. It seems pretty cut and dry to me that the church is removed before the judgment starts. Not to mention, Paul says several times that we are not appointed to wrath, like the bride of Christ is not appointed to wrath, and the tribulation period is the wrath of the Lamb, really. So, that's sort of my argument for that. Now, things are going to get interesting because we're going to transition to the throne room of heaven. So from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So this is very interesting. He's in heaven. He's seeing these creatures with four faces, with a man, an eagle, an ox. Um, I don't even remember the fourth one. But there's four different, four different faces. And it's just this intense experience. I would recommend 
reading Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2 because it mirrors this vision that John has because Ezekiel also heads into the throne room of heaven and he sees these visions of angel with the same four faces and it's pretty wild and you see the sea of glass and what is that and we're going to explain some of that. I would also recommend, well, we're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In that year, King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. So Isaiah has been pulled into heaven, and his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings covered their faces. It was just like what John saw. And who they covered their feet and with who they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I'm going to explain some of this. So this is what this packet's for tonight. If you read, I'm not going to read it all tonight, because we do not have that kind of time. But Exodus 25 through 40 is a description of the tabernacle. God tells Moses to be, pay close attention and to build the tabernacle with exactly the, the specifications he gives. The tabernacle is this big rectangle, and there's all these little tent poles in this rectangle with sheets of fabric between the tent poles that create this courtyard. And then inside of this courtyard, there's a couple of different instruments, and then another rectangle structure with a, that's covered. And Inside that, struck, that covered structure, inside of the courtyard, is the holy place and the holy of holies. So we're going to kind of detail some of these pieces because this is extremely interesting. So the tabernacle itself is a picture of Christ, but it's also a picture or uh, a representation on earth of the throne room of God and what it looks like in heaven. So we're going to get to understand what the rest of chapter 4 was talking about. So we're going to start at the very inside and then move our way out. So you see behind, there's a, on the handout that I gave you, you can see inside that um, covered structure, there's two areas. Um, on your left, there's the holy place, and on the right, the holy of holies. So there's a big curtain or veil, and behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant. Um, And while they were camping in the wilderness, the pillar of smoke would be right over the, the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant is just a little rectangle box. It's about two by two by three, so two feet deep, two feet wide, or two feet deep, two feet high, three feet wide. Uh, The bottom portion of it is acacia wood that is covered in gold. Why is this interesting? Because acacia wood 
is the only wood in this area of the world that's thorny, which means that acacia wood is very much likely the same material that they used to build the crown of thorns that was put on Jesus' head. And then that box is filled, covered in gold, representing either royalty or wealth. And then the top is just all gold. And you see the two, this picture that I gave you is actually from Raiders of the Lost Ark, so it's probably not actually what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, but it's a great movie, so we're going to use it. But there's two angels, or two uh, cherubs, or cherubim, which is plural, on top, and their wings are folded in. In between, there actually probably would have been a space. They're almost touching on the top of this picture, but there would have been a space. And in that space is probably where, in most other cultures, they would have put an idol or a picture of what their God looked like. But God wanted no idol, nothing to represent him. Why? Because God is uncreated. God created the universe. He's outside of the universe. Nothing created could ever represent him well. It would be an abomination. So God wants no representation of him. And that spot in the middle is called the mercy seat. And the only thing that happened on the mercy seat is once a year in the Day of Atonement, the high priest would crawl under the veil because there was no separation of the veil. He had to crawl underneath it. He would have a rope attached to his ankle because if he wasn't clean, he might have died and they had to pull him out from underneath the veil. So, because this is a holy place. This is God's presence on earth, right? The tabernacle was meant to be God's dwell, a place where God could dwell on earth with his people. And so, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, which, by the way, had to be a descendant of Aaron, uh, we find out in Numbers 18 that Aaron or his descendants would bear the iniquity of the people. Does it sound like Jesus should? Would crawl under the veil and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins for the entire nation. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, interestingly, like I said, the tabernacle was built to be a place where God could dwell on earth. John tells us this about Jesus in chapter 1 of his gospel, where he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling can actually, in some translations, it's actually translated tabernacled. So we know that the tabernacle is a picture of Christ. And then there's the veil. Now the veil, why is it there? The veil represents the separation of us from God. Now the only person who can go behind there is the high priest, and you can only do it once a year, and he has to be completely ceremonially clean, and he's only doing it for the forgiveness of sins for all the people. The sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And when the day that Christ died on that Good Friday, the veil was torn, meaning the veil was taken away. The separation between God and us was taken away. And so interestingly, in those Old Testament passages, or even in John's description of the throne room of heaven, there's no veil. Why? If you're, if you're in heaven, you're, there's no separation, right? The veil isn't there. But then you see in the holy place, there's a few different pieces of furniture in the holy place. First is the table of showbread. Very similar. It's made from acacia wood, cast in gold. And then on it, there's 12 pieces of bread, which represent 12 tribes of Israel. But there's also wine. So on the table of showbread, there's bread and wine. Does that sound like communion, right? Christ is represented here. And then we have the golden lampstand. 
So the golden lampstand is all gold. Uh, it specifically mentions that the gold has to be hammered and beaten. And it's supposed to also have pictures uh, carved of almond blossoms amongst it as well. And then there's seven lamps. Seven probably because it means the completion of the work of God. Uh, and gold, again, representing either the, the wealth or the kingship of, of Christ. And almond blossoms. Why almond blossoms? Well, interestingly, inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three items. One, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The second thing in the, inside the Ark of the Covenant is a jar of the manna from when they were wandering in the desert. What else is Jesus? The bread of life. The third thing inside the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's staff. And you find out in Numbers 17 and 18, their priests had an argument. And they said, we want the same sort of power or just, we, we want to do what Aaron does, right? We want to have the same level of respect. Um, and so Moses says, here's how I'm going to solve this problem. Everybody give me your staff. I'm going to throw them on the ground, and then one of them is going to bud. And then one of them budded almond buds, and it was Aaron's staff. And interestingly, almonds bud in January. They bud in the dead of winter. When everything else is dead, there's life. And specifically Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff was dead wood. It was broken off of a tree. It was dead wood. And out of death produced life. So that is why almonds. All right. I'm sorry. We are running way later than normal, but hopefully I can get through all this before even 8 o'clock. Outside in the temple courts, or the tabernacle courts, the temple was built based on the structure of the tabernacle. So in the outer courts of the tabernacle, there was two pieces of furniture. They were made of bronze. Remember, bronze represents judgment. Why? Well, the bronze altar is where the animals were sacrificed. The animals were killed and sacrificed on the bronze altar. And then their blood would drip down on the coals. Here's where it gets really interesting. So now, the blood purifies you from sin, right? Jesus is the sacrifice for us. He represents the sacrifice. Now, the blood that dripped on the coals is the blood they would use to light the altar of incense inside the temple that would allow the prayers to go up to heaven because it made the prayers clean because the coals were touched by the blood. The same coal, by the way, Isaiah's lips were touched and the blood had touched the coals Isaiah's lips were touched with that made him clean and worthy to be standing in that position because his sin was washed away by the blood on the coal. Very interesting. And then there's the bronze laver. Now, before you entered, if you were, especially if you were a descendant of Aaron, before you entered into the inner part, into the inner, because um, this is in the outer court, before you entered into the holy into uh, the holy place of the Holy of Holies, you would want to wash yourself in the bronze laver. This is where the water was to get you clean, to make sure you didn't have any impurities before you entered into the inner part of the tabernacle. So here, we get a description that is, I, this is my favorite part of this. So you see in heaven, right? In those pictures of heaven, you saw, the, you saw the coal, so you know that the bronze altar was there. You saw the lampstand, 
because it said that there was a lampstand there, so you, you know that the lampstand's there. You saw the throne, the veil is missing, but the throne is like the Ark of the Covenant because the, the angels are on each side of the throne. There's a sea of glass that you have to walk, walk across, right? Well, when Solomon built the temple, the bronze laver wasn't built above the ground. It was built into the stone, and it was built huge like a public bath, right? But it was based on the design of the tabernacle. So the sea of glass, if, if the tabernacle is a picture of what the throne room of heaven looks like, that's the bronze lever, but it's, it's no longer liquid. You can walk right across it because it's solid, it's glass now, and it's pure. Why? Because the sacrificial work of Christ is already done in heaven. So there's no need to cleanse yourself before walking up to the throne anymore because you're already cleaned by the blood of Christ. So it's now a sea of glass that you can walk across. So I hope that that helped make the picture of heaven a little bit clearer in Revelation 4. Now, as I mentioned, it's a picture of Christ. So if you go to that last page, Numbers chapter 2 gives us the description of how the Israelites camped around the tabernacle while they were moving through the wilderness. And this is what it would have looked like. They were told the 12 tribes break up into four sections. This is all Numbers chapter 2. This is all it talks about. The 12 tribes break up into four sections. I'm going to put these three tribes together. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. Dan, Naphtali, and Asher. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. All right? Now, whoever was listed first, you would camp closest to the tabernacle, and everyone would camp in that section under the ensign or the banner of that first tribe of the three that were in that subset. And then you would camp in a specific direction from the tabernacle. So you couldn't go beyond the width of the tabernacle. So the Levites, the priest, camped around the tabernacle, and then the tribes would camp in either the north, the west, the east, or the south. And because they had to stay specific to the directions, and they couldn't go beyond the width of the Levite camp, it ended up looking like a cross in the middle of the desert. Why? Because the tabernacle is Christ dwelling among us. But here's the really interesting thing. I also mentioned that this is a picture of heaven. So as you look, the camp of Reuben, according to Jewish tradition, his ensign or banner would have been the banner of a man. And then the camp of Ephraim, who had Manasseh and Benjamin underneath him, Ephraim would have been camping closest to the tabernacle. His banner would have been that of an ox. The camp of Dan, who would have had Naphtali and Asher camping beside him, Dan was the closest to the tabernacle. His ensign or banner would have been that of an eagle. And the camp of Judah, who Issachar and Zebulon camped beside him, Judah closest to the tabernacle, his ensign or banner would have been that of a lion. What were the four faces of the angels? Man, ox, lion, eagle. You see that in Revelation and in Ezekiel. And that's how they camped around the tabernacle. So the angels that surround the throne and the tribe of the Israelites that surrounded the tabernacle 
have the same picture of the faces that were on the angels. Just to give you a glimpse of the picture that's being painted here in Revelation chapter 4 of the throne room of God. Now, there is one thing that the Old Testament picture and the New Testament picture didn't match up. In the Old Testament, there weren't 24 thrones. But in the New Testament, there is. Why? Because Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And so this also helps me see that the 24 thrones were probably part of the carpentry work Jesus did to prepare for the church, his bride, to come to the banquet, to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And that's chapter 4 of Revelation. It's a lot of information. I hope it was enlightening. I hope you felt like you learned a lot, like you're a little bit closer to God. Um, But with that, let's pray as we are running out of time. Father God, I just want to thank you for tonight. I want to thank you for the opportunity to open up your word, um, to see some depth in the picture of Scripture and how the old can help us see what the new is saying. God, thank you for this picture of the tabernacle of heaven and of your son so that we can see how we are cleansed by his blood and help us to share that with those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.